over a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic, Episode 6.11, Catharsis and Space Wizards. Last time we participated in the Battle of Telos IV, defeated and redeemed the fallen Jedi Atris, and killed Darth Nihilus in a duel. Now we finish the KOTOR 2 narrative in style by defeating Darth Treya, ending the Sith Triumvirate, and blowing Malachor V to hell. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey. And there's always a bit of truth in legends. Knights of the Old Republic 2, Part 11, the Second Battle of Malachor V. When we left off, the Battle of Telos IV ended in success for Surik and the Republic fleet. The exile then got to speak with Admiral Carthanassi, who is thankful for the chance to defend his homeworld this time around. Onasi told Surik of his adventures with Revan and how they saved the galaxy five years earlier between the Endar Spire and the Starforge. Karth mentions that Revan sought something terrible in the unknown regions, believing the Mandalorians had been influenced by another party to begin the Mandalorian Wars. Before Revan departed, he charged Onasi with defending the Republic and keeping it stable in case of an invasion by the unknown threat. Finally, Onasi asked Surik to go to the Unknown Regions, find Revan, and bring him back following her mission to defeat the Sith Triumvirate. All of this was meant to set the stage for the story of KOTOR 3, but ended up setting the stage for the 2012 part prequel, part sequel novel, The Old Republic Revan. If the player chooses a dark side Revan earlier in the game, Onasi will be replaced by Admiral Seed, though his appearances are glitched. After Surik left, our old friend Bastila Shan appeared to speak privately with Onasi. Shan confides that she misses Revan, though the dialogue doesn't really confirm much about their relationship. Shan stayed behind to aid the Republic at Revan's request, just like Karth. Bastila is the only Jedi confirmed within this game to have survived the first Jedi Purge, though we find out that two others did from other sources. Although Bastila will play no further part in the events of this game, it's nice to see her alive and well. If you chose a female Revan, you only see Bastila once in the Korriban flashback. The Revan novel later confirmed that Sean and Revan got married and had a son named Vanair Sean. Revan asked Bastila to stay behind because she was pregnant at the time of his departure. At the time of this encounter in 3951, Vanir was about three years old but is obviously not present in KOTOR 2. Sadly, these brief glimpses are the last chronological glimpses we ever get of Bastila and Karth, though they are obviously both present in the prequel part of the Revan novel. That's right, the Revan novel has a prequel part. It's so exciting. With Citadel Station secure and the space battle over, Telos IV is safe. On Narshida, Goto tasked Surik with stabilizing the Republic by aiding efforts on Telos IV, Onderon, and Dantooine. If Surik did nothing, the Republic had 30 standard days left before full collapse, an event that would create a cataclysmic power vacuum that no political or military entity in existence could fill. 
Essentially, doing nothing would doom the galaxy to a slow, painful death at the hands of entropy or consumption by Darth Nihilus. But as we know, Surik chose to do something. She gathered a motley crew of companions and they began darting about the galaxy, trying to save the galaxy and maybe do a little good in the process. Surik, her companions, and their Mandalorian allies resolved the Onderon civil war in favor of Queen Talia by defeating General Vaklu's secessionist forces who were heavily reinforced by Sith troops from Nihilus. They also uprooted the hidden Sith presence from Duxum, which was necessary to keep Onderon safe. Had Vaklu been successful and Onderon seceded, it would have caused a mass secessionist movement of hundreds of nearby systems, which would have given Nihilus a huge area in the inner rim from which to plan his attacks and move unimpeded. The Companions also aided the Kunda Militia on Dantooine, defending the Kunda Township under the leadership of Administrator Rina Adair. Kunda was under attack by a large group of mercenaries hired by the Exchange and led by a hardened warrior named Asgul. If Kunda had fallen, Dantooine would have become a haven for the Exchange and rogue Mandalorians, thus giving the Sith more room to move unimpeded in the galaxy. And finally, Surik and her allies not only protected the Talosian research project from being turned into a glorified slush fund for Zerka Corp, they also defended Telos IV from Darth Nihilus, who sought to consume the world like he had Qatar. Though Surik completes Goto's quest earlier, the Republic isn't really stabilized until Nihilus is defeated. And with that, the Ebon Hawk departs Citadel Station, bound for Malachor V. Location profile, Malachor 5. It's been a minute since we've done one of these, huh? Malachor 5 takes an outsized importance in both KOTOR games relative to its location and the anonymity prior to the battle in 3960. In KOTOR 1, Malachor 5 is a fabled place, the site of Revan's final fall to the dark side, but it becomes so much more in KOTOR 2. This is our 11th episode in the KOTOR 2 narrative, and we've talked about Malachor 5 in every single one. Really, we went back and checked. Malachor 5 isn't just the site of a major battle and the activation of a superweapon. It's the site of Revan's greatest tactical triumph and the location where the Sith were striking from and were trained. Malachor 5 is part of the story and is spoken of in hushed tones, a mix of reverence and fear. To every character in KOTOR 2, Malachor 5 is a place of horror that set the stage for two galaxy-spanning wars, the near collapse of the Republic, and the annihilation of the Jedi Order. Each of the meatbag companions was personally affected by the events in some way, and many of them were present. We once said that we only know of seven characters who were confirmed to be at Malachor, but that was a low estimate. We know the following characters were present in some way. Mitra Surik, Revan, Candrus Ordo, Atten Rand, the human who would become Darth Nihilus, Baudor, Mandalore the Ultimate, probably Malak, probably Mira, and Eren Kay, to whom we will re- return momentarily. But the history of this strange world goes back thousands of years before the activation of the mass shadow generator. Malachor V resides in the Outer Rim on the very edges of old Sith space in the far northeastern reaches of the galaxy. When the Sith Empire formed in 69,000 BBY on Korriban, they were drawn to the immense dark side energy of Malachor V and built a training facility. 
The Trias Academy would be used to train Sith in the dark side for hundreds of years until it was abandoned sometime around the time of the Great Hyperspace War in 5000 BBY. After that, the planet and the Trias Academy were abandoned until Revan discovered them in 3960. While scouting for a suitable location to set a trap for the Mandalorians, Revan stumbled upon Malachor V and the Treyas Academy. Malachor was a taboo world to the Mandalorians, a fact that Revan ex- exploited during the battle. By 3960, Revan, as Supreme Commander of Republic Forces, was ready to end the war, and Malachor V was the perfect place to set his trap. The plan was simple. Revan gathered every ship the Republic could muster into one massive fleet and placed half the ships under the command of Mitra Surik. The ships Surik received were damaged and ragged, having seen many battles in a few short years. Surik's fleet was placed above Malachor V and, in its bedraggled state, would be the perfect bait for the Mandalorians. Meanwhile, Revan's detachment contained most of the functional, undamaged ships the Republic had left. This battle group would lie in wait in a nearby system to avoid detection, but once the Mandalorians took the bait, Revan's detachment would jump into the system behind the Mandalorians, slamming the trap shut. The Mandalorians would be caught directly above Malachor V and between two Republic fleets in their front and rear. The Mandalorians would have no option but to to try and fight out of the trap, with no escape vectors available. Because while ships can move directionally in all three dimensions in space, it's really hard to escape vertically when you're stuck between a rock and two hard places. But there was another part of Revan's plan, a super weapon designed to ensure total victory, the mass shadow generator. Only three people knew about the mass shadow generator, Revan, Surik, and Baldur. The mass shadow generator was a portable weaponized gravity well that worked by creating an artificial mass shadow, which is just a fancy way to say hyperspace gravity well. But it wasn't enough to give the ship a tug and let gravity do the work. Instead, the super weapon ripped ships from the sky with such force that they would crumple like a person balling up a piece of aluminum foil or a sheet of paper, killing their crews. Most of the ships would slam into the planet so hard that they became part of the mantle. In late 3960, the weapon was ready and Revan moved all his pieces into place. The Battle of Malachor V would be the largest ever fought in Star Wars up to this point, likely comprising millions of soldiers. Surik's fleet didn't have to wait very long above Malachor V for the battle to be joined. Mandalorians attacked with a distinct numerical advantage and began eating away at Surik's detachment. By now, Revan should have arrived at the cavalry, but he was delayed in the other system fighting a Mandalorian scouting party. After the delay, however, Revan's fleet arrived, completing the double envelopment of the Mandalorians. We are going to have a whole thing here about the similarities between the Battle of Malachor V and the real-world Battle of Cannae fought between the Roman Republic and Carthage in 216 BCE. However, it proved too unwieldy, so we'll just link to a Twitter thread about it. Suffice to say, Revan's strategy is very similar to the Carthaginian double envelopment of the Roman Legion. Despite being caught in a trap, the Mandalorians nearly fought their way out. In fact, the outcome was in doubt for some time. As Baudor noted, quote, I remember the ships. 
the last stand of the Republic, the tattered remnants of our fleet, largest we could gather, but it was damaged, weakened, and vulnerable. The Mandalorians couldn't resist. They tore into us like beasts, shredding our ships to scrap as we fought back, end quote. However, Republic lines held on both sides, though Surik lost more than 75% of her forces before it was over. Finally, Surik saw the sign that Revan had given her, and, with a wordless nod to Bowder, she ordered the activation of the mass shadow generator. In an instant, hundreds of thousands of soldiers were killed, and hundreds of starships were ripped from the sky. Those that didn't make planetfall at terminal velocity fell into orbit around the planet. Malachor 5 itself was cracked to its core and separated into smaller planetoids held together by the world's remaining gravity. Surak, the closest Jedi who survived the activation, went unconscious from shock while Revan took the remainder of the Republic fleet and fled to the unknown regions. However, the sudden and overwhelming amount of pain and death that occurred in the wake of the activation of the mass shadow generator ripped through the force, creating a wound. It is unknown whether the wound in the force at Malachor 5 was the largest and strongest of all the wounds in the galaxy, but that seems like a logical conclusion. In 3959, the newly minted Darth Revan began using Treyas Academy, the only structure on Malachor 5 that survived the Cataclysm, to convert captured Jedi Knights to the dark side. This went on until the end of the Jedi Civil War in 3956, but no one knew it existed. Uh, but the Treyas core was built deep within the planet, and it survived and thrived, creating a crucible that could turn Jedi into assassins and dark Jedi. Though other such academies existed, Treyas was the most prominent and the home base of the Sith Triumvirate beginning in 3955. Sometime later, probably in 3954, Darth Nihilus and Sion... Uh, betrayed their master Treya and exiled her from the Sith after blinding her to the Force. Sion would continue to use Malachor V until his death in 3951, but Nihilus took his fleet and began consuming worlds at the edges of the known galaxy. In 3951, Kreia, having somehow reconnected to the Force, located Mitra Surik and initiated her plans to train Surik and then bring her to Malachor V to destroy the Force. But Malachor V is much more than just a loose affiliation of planetoids and an orbital ship graveyard. It's a monument. A monument to Revan's calculated slaughter and his use of Treyas Academy to turn hundreds of Jedi to the dark side. A monument to Baudur's engineering brilliance and the devastation it wrought. A monument to Surik's crimes, how she cut up herself off from the force and the wound she carries always a monument to Treya and her various and sundry contradictions a monument to pain to trauma pain death and war a monument to all our sins canon alert 40 malachor in episode 5.0 we did a brief canon update on malachor but left the one the full one for the very last episode of kotor 2 the planet Malachor was first mentioned in canon in a season 5 episode of The Clone Wars, but its first appearance in canon came in the f season finale of Rebels Season 2. In Rebels, Malachor is still intact in 4BBY, but it is a barren wasteland. Its surface is thin and covers large subterranean caverns, one of which held a Sith temple with a superweapon that was supposedly powerful enough 
to cleanse the galaxy of all life. The temple is reminiscent of the Trias Academy as both were built underground and were the site of ancient Sith rituals. At some point, thousands of years before the age of the Empire, a massive battle was fought between a large contingent of Jedi Knights and thousands of Sith performing a ritual at the Foot Temple under their leader, the Sith Witch. During the battle, the two sides fought ferociously, but the superweapon misfired or backfired, petrifying all combatants, including the Sith Witch, more than a thousand Sith fighters, and nearly as many Jedi. Their unused lightsabers would litter the grounds of Malachor for thousands of years until Ezra Bridger, Kanan, Jarrus, and Ashoka Tano discovered them. The event was known as the Great Scourge of Malachor, and it was told to Jedi younglings for millennia, a tale of misplaced hubris and how not to win a war. Ezra also discovered a Sith holocron containing a female voice that powered the temple, though Ezra didn't know the temple was a weapon until after it was activated. Some parts of the lore about Malachor have obviously changed from legends. The Sith were inserted for the Mandos, whose total societal annihilation has been moved and merged with another event, which we talked about in episode 4.4. And, obviously, Malachor is still intact thousands of years after the Cataclysm, unlike Malachor V, which won't even survive this episode intact. However, Dave Filoni, director and producer of animation at Lucasfilm, has confirmed that this Malachor is meant to be the same as Malachor V. As we said in episode 4.4, Filoni has spoken often of his ideas for the lore and stories behind the great scourge of Malachor, though he is careful to leave them open in canon for the time being in case someone else writes them. His description of the Sith Witch is of particular importance to us. A possible canon alert, the presence. As of yet, there's not even a direct connection between the Sith Witch, who died leading her forces during the Great Scourge of Malachor, and the female voice from the Sith Holocron that Ezra found in the Sith Temple, a.k.a. the Presence. Uh, thus, we should be careful to note that this is pure speculation based on scattered pieces of lore from Rebels and the words of Dave Filoni, who left it purposefully vague in the first place. All that being said, there is some cir circumstantial evidence that the presence is the spirit of the Sith Witch who died on Malachor in canon, and that they are actually both Darth Treya. Uh, obviously, the fact that the holocron is found on Malachor is a big hint towards Treya, but other info comes from Filoni's description of how he sees the lore playing out. In an interview with IGN, Filoni said, quote, But yeah, there's an ancient Sith Lord that Nika Futterman was playing, and I'm still going over the do's and don'ts of the continuity of all that, but I wrote the history down, I just put it out there in case people want to pick it up later when they're working on things and give some continuity. I won't reveal the name, I have named the character, but I have to make sure that everybody's cool with it. End quote. Filoni also noted that in his mind, the spirit of the Sith Witch, who died when the weapon misfired on Malachor, inhabited the Sith Holocron Ezra found, making the Sith Witch and the Presence the same person. If that's the case, then the Presence is thousands of years old and fought a large climactic battle on Malachor. The title Sith Witch is also interesting because... Treya is one of the few characters to be referred to as a witch outside of the Nine Sisters of Dathomir. 
The presence also tells Ezra that she holds the knowledge of how to destroy the Sith, but why would a Sith Lord record, record that knowledge unless they sought to destroy both Sith and Jedi, as Kraya does? Now, maybe Filoni is just, uh, maybe Dave Filoni is just referring to a new character and didn't want to spell it out. Maybe we're reading way too much into this because we'd really like to see some of these characters return. But then again, if he's adapting an old Legends character to be the Sith Witch, Darth Trey is really the only one from Legends who fits. Before we finish this narrative, there's a big caveat to be discussed. As you've no doubt concluded by now, we've been coming at the story of KOTOR 2 from the perspective that Kryos slash Trya is a fascinating character whose ideas about the Force are insightful, but who has absolutely dogshit personal politics. As we've pointed out before, the game takes several direct shots at Trya, calling her libertarianism a Sith trait and making it totally antithetical to the light side choices. In our telling, Trya is a deeply flawed character who is meant to serve as a wise mentor and a cautionary tale about believing yourself to the expense of all others. She's another icon to be torn down just like all the rest of the game. We believe this story backs up those claims because the game ultimately reinforces the need for the Jedi and their code sort of frowns on letting people suffer just because of the circumstances of their birth. If nothing else, the Mandalorian Wars taught the, the, taught the future Jedi that much or should have been. Um, but there is another reading of Kraya which argues that she's supposed to be the game's moral center. This point of view argues that Kraya's politics and life philosophies are right even down to her we-live-in-a-society monologue about not giving beggars change on Nar Shada. This rationale assumes that Kraya is functionally infallible and points to her being ostensibly right about everything that happens. Her opponents might also point to the recurrence of similar libertarian philosophers in lead writer Chris Avalon's other games like Planescape Torment and Fallout New Vegas. The argument is compelling, to be sure, as Kraya is presented as usually being correct and is easily the most memorable character in the game. But we shouldn't forget that KOTOR 2 also goes to great pains to show that Trya is really wrong about a lot of things. She's wrong about the exile and is a hopeless Revan apologist. She's also an inveterate space racist against many races. But the idea is probably best dispelled by Chris Avalon himself, who responded on Twitter in a thread about this topic, quote, Writing for games is rarely a solo endeavor, nor should it be. There's too much to do, and even if one person did it, it might suffer a lack of perspective, end quote. This is just a long way of saying that Cray is another in a long line of oft-misunderstood antiheroes like Walt. Uh, Walter White from Breaking Bad, Rorschach from Watchmen, or Don Draper from Mad Men, characters who are the best at what they do, but the means to their ends are dubious and some, sometimes downright evil. Uh, back in the game, the Ebon Hawk is hurtling through hyperspace with a slimmed down crew after Trey departed Telos 4, and Bowder and HK 47 remained there to deal with the HK manufacturing plants. Curiously, Baldur's tiny remote droid that followed him everywhere took the trip to Malachor 5. When the Ebon Hawk drops from hyperspace near Malachor 5, we finally get a look at the planet, and it turns out it's a churning maelstrom of death surrounded by an orbiting ship graveyard. 
a mass of rock pulsing with green electricity. As the Ebonhawk attempted to land, Malachor 5's chaotic atmosphere caused the ship to crash into two large stone columns jutting upward from the surface. It sounds worse than it is. The ship is leaning against the columns in a position where it can be retrieved. We've joked about Atten crashing a couple of times, but on Malachor 5, it's a wonder he kept the ship in one piece. After the crash, the remaining companions are scattered and Surig is left alone outside the Ebon Hawk. We spent all that time discussing Surig's connections and force bonds, and now she's alone for the majority of this map. One of the biggest complaints players had about the final level is that the cut content made it made much of it indecipherable and you never find out what happens to the companions. Mm-hmm. Treya's predictions about them or some of Treya's predictions about them were cut and never and we never got to see what happened to them on Malachor 5. They make a plan to take down Treya and are defeated easily, but that's all we know in the base release. Even many of the cutscenes that were supposed to be interspersed throughout the map were cut or pared down. Instead of a frantic journey through hell, fighting repetitive enemies broken up by cutscenes, making the danger for Cirque's companions all the more real, the player gets a slog through a mediocre map with repetitive enemies and an underwhelming conclusion to the story, at least in the base release. Luckily, we have no such issues because we are playing the Restored Content mod, which shows us all of Darth Trias predictions about the future and concludes the story nicely instead of leaving us wondering. Unfortunately, the restored content mod can't do anything for the storm beasts who are belligerent and numerous. They're incredibly repetitive damage sponges and you have to fight them all because later you have to play through this as Bowder's tiny soccer ball sized floating remote, which has no offensive capabilities to speak of and is slow as shit. So if you don't knock out the storm beasts, They'll catch and destroy Bowder's remote, and that would mess up the plan. What's the plan? Well, we're glad you asked. Surik has to make her way to the Trias Academy to confront Darth Trya. If she doesn't, the Dark Lord will kill herself, which would also kill Surik through their intense force bond. Along the way, Surik must defeat all the Storm Beasts, otherwise they'll easily kill Bowder's remote droid. The droid is there to initialize and activate the Mass Shadow Generator a second time, which will destroy Malachor V. In between that, we have to cram in a bunch of character wrap-ups, two big duels, and somehow figure out how to conclude the KOTOR 2 narrative in a satisfying manner. The actual surface of Malachor V is a gray-purple wasteland of craggy rocks and storm beasts, ferocious bipedal creatures of unknown origin. We tell you about killing all of them, but it's really just spam your favorite force power until they're all dead. They're fairly easy as enemies go, except for the greater Storm Beast, who appears after Surik makes it past the last doors, just in front of the Trias Academy. The greater Storm Beast is a mini-boss fight and is not really the hardest enemy, but it can kill you with one hit if you don't have enough hit points. Along the way, we'll see a couple of cutscenes. One features Mira awakening in an unknown part of the world with her old nemesis, Hanhar, waking up. Walking up. The other is a piece of cut dialogue between Trya and Sion. Darth Trya now wears black robes, has black hairbands, and black eyes, and Sion has clearly resumed the role of apprentice. When Sion asks what she will do with the exile, Trya says that she will be broken and made an empty vessel for Trya's teachings. (laughs) 
After the greater storm beast is slain, Sarek finally gains access to the Trace Academy. If that trip through Malachor 5's surface seems short, it's because we didn't think you needed to hear about killing every single storm beast. The academy is buried underground and was the only structure to survive the planet fully intact. The entrance is massive with sleek greystone covering the entire edifice and a narrow bridge between the surface and the academy. Uh... A wide walkway leads to a small circular door that is dwarfed by the rest of the facade. Oddly enough, when Sirik approaches, Sith assassins form up on her left and right, but they don't attack. Instead, they form an honor guard with five Sith assassins kneeling on each side. It seems Trey intends this whole thing as a coordination of Sirik as the heir apparent, or perhaps it's just a show of respect for finally getting this far. Either way, we'll have to wait to see the innards of the Treus Academy as it's time for more cutscenes and solo missions. Originally, there was a brief scene between Visus Mar and Candrus Ordo and uh, Malachor V, but it was cut. Their dialogue isn't much, so we'll skip it. It's, it's bro broken, even uh, you know, even what, what's available now. Uh, now we finally come to Hanhar and Mira's final battle. Mira has, of course, been a close companion of Surix since the since their escapades on Nar Shaddaa, but Hanhar is mostly an afterthought to a light side exile. You see him on Nar Shaddaa, he's defeated by Mi Mira in Visquis's arena, and then revived by Kreia, to whom he swears a life debt. Then you don't see him again until this moment on Malachor V. Yes, Hanhar and Mira have a long history in the lore together, but in the game he's kind of pointless. Uh, Dark Side Exile will get Hanhar as a companion on Nar Shaddaa, and he's definitely a good one to have around, if for nothing else than the sheer amount of damage he tanks. But still, his backstory is confusing and doesn't make much sense. He's just a weirdly underdeveloped character in a game with more character development than it knows what to do with. A persistent yet unconfirmed rumor has existed for some time that Obsidian requested to have Hanhar train as a dark Jedi under a dark side exile, but George Lucas denied that request. But, you know, that would have been really fun. Alas... We're left with a duel that seems like it should have had more emotional weight, but just didn't. Hanar hates life debts and finds them to be a form of slavery, and he's not wrong, but he also won't let himself be released from his life debt to Mira, even though she's tried a dozen times. It's all part of Hanhar's increasing mental instability, which Kraya preyed upon when she saved him on Narshada and swore him to another life debt. Kraya needed all of Sirk's companions to be at their best, and so she sent Hanhar out to hunt Mira. All of that happened in episode 6.4, so it's not really surprising if you don't remember. Hanhar just doesn't show up until the end, um, and he gets a duel with Mira, which he proceeds to lose just like every other fight they've had. Once again, Hanhar is at the mercy of Mira, but she decides to grant the Worky's request and kill him because he would continue to hunt her if she didn't. It's an act that seems unbecoming of a Jedi, but it was essentially a mercy kill on a Wookiee who has wanted to die for decades. There's an option to let Hanhar live in the game, which seems more in keeping with Jedi principles, but the Star Wars Encyclopedia later confirmed Mira killed him on Malachor V, so who are we to argue? Mira begins the game as a bounty hunter mostly out for herself, 
but rescues the exile on Narshada and then joins Surik's crew. Along the way, Mir proves to be Force-sensitive and trains under Surik, becoming a Jedi Sentinel. Though Mira is a Mandalorian, she didn't hate the Jedi like most of her people and longed for something more out of life than just bounty hunting and dodging attacks from a crazed Wookiee. She found that belonging in the teachings of the Jedi, though she initially had trouble coping with the rush of life and energy produced by the Force. But Surik helped Mira clear her mind of distraction, like a good master should. Mira will go on to be one of the lost Jedi who helped rebuild the Order after the events of KOTOR II. Now that she's finally rid of Hanhar, Mira can reconnect with the rest of the Ibanha crew and try to find a way to stop Kryon. Next up in our cavalcade of solo missions is Bowder's floating gray remote droid. When we said that all the companions get big moments to shine in this game, we weren't kidding. Mira saves and impersonates the exile in Nar before getting a nice little duel with Hanhar. Bowder rescues and aids the companions on the surface of Telos 4 and doesn't die while helping HK-47 access the HK manufacturing plant. T3 had an entire 30-minute tutorial mission on the Ebon Hawk at the very beginning of the game. In addition to impersonating a mobster, Goto is the one who spells out the state of the galaxy and starts Surik on the quest to stabilize the Republic. Candorus Ordo gets to help Sirik retake Onderon and is one of the three companions who defeated Darth Nihilus. Likewise, Visus Mar was instrumental in the defeat of Nihilus and got a duel with Sirik earlier in the game. HA-47 has a series of tasks to restore his memory and the HK manufacturing plant. Atten duels the twin sons bounty hunters in the cantina on Nar Shada and uh, has and has an upcoming duel with Darsan that was eventually cut from the game. Michael gets, Michael gets to be a historian like he always wanted and fills fills the player in on everything that's happened recently, giving the first names and descriptions for many key events in the preceding 40 years. Brianna gets a duel with her sisters and arrests Treya after the events at the Rebuild Jedi Enclave. Meanwhile, Kreia slash Treya has so many that we lost count, but the most prominent are her defense of Surik on Dantooine and her upcoming duel with Surik and her death. And then there's Baldur's remote, which doesn't do very much in the game besides float around Baldur, occasionally beep and do some repairs. Baldur built the remote during his childhood on Iridonia, and it stayed with him through the years, becoming a cherished friend. But now it's out here alone in this jagged hellscape and receives a pre-recorded hollow message from his master. Baldur says the mass shadow generator can be powered up and then detonated by the remote, blowing Malachor V to hell and gone. But you're thinking, Luke and Kelsey, how could the mass shadow generator still function or have power after everything on the planet except the Trias Academy was leveled the first time around? The answer, oddly enough, comes in the form of those starships that were torn down to Malachor V. While most of the ships caught in the superweapons activation were crumpled and crushed, a few of the ships crashed to the planet largely intact. Their hulls and compartments breached and or submerged into the surface, but still functional if properly powered up from computer consoles. Thus, Bowder installed a sequencing program in his remote, that would allow it to interact with some ships, daisy chain their limited power together, and power up the mass shadow generator. The remote will then wait for the signal from Surik to reactivate the superweapon, 
destroying the planet in the process. Unfortunately, the remote must do so manually, so it will die along with Malachor V. Bowder's hologram explains all of this via exposition, and the remote gets going. Remember, the reason Bowder doesn't do this himself is that he was supposed to have died at Telos 4, helping HK-47 infiltrate the HK manufacturing plant, but that part was never added into the final game or even the restored content mod. The remote must find four partially intact chips, enter a command sequence into each to draw the necessary power. This is done easily since Sir cleared out all of the storm beasts, and after the final sequence is entered, another hologram of Bowder activates. He says the remote must stay on planet to activate the superweapon manually once Sirk sends the command. Bowder thanks his remote before signing off, but there's a big problem with the plan. Goto tracked the remote after guessing Bowder's plan and installing secret programming in the remote. That programming allows Goto to override the remote, lock it down, and receive all incoming transmissions. Goto wasn't, doesn't want Malachor 5 destroyed as it, he believes it has far too many ancient priceless relics, but he didn't count on the return of HK-47, who arrived late to the party. HK-47 has a trio of HK-50 droids, and they easily destroy Goto, saving their remote and Sirk's plans in the process. Well, that seemed rather abrupt. It's because it was. The sequence from Goto showing up to his death takes less than two minutes, even when the HK-50s are added back in by the RCM. With Goto's death, his programming override on the remote was removed, and the remote was free to complete its task. Goto is the first companion to die, but certainly won't be the last. At this point, there was supposed to be a cutscene where Surik's remaining Force-sensitive companions would attempt to mount an attack against Darth Treya, only to be beaten soundly. Atten, Michael, Brianna, Visus Mar, and Mira attack in a group, but Trey is mostly just amused, dodging their attacks with ease before incapacitating them all and sending them to sleep it off in the prison cells elsewhere within Treyas. So that's where your companions were supposed to be during all this and helps explain why they don't show up in the vanilla version of the game. Their capture was supposed to become even more important in the next scene as we see the exile enter Treyas Academy with Treya narrating. She says that the exile will be faced with a choice, but in the original game, that's all you hear. The choice was between taking a shorter route through Treyas and getting to Treya faster, or going the long way to liberate the companions, which would tire the exile considerably before the final fight. This was cut because it made no sense once the scene showing Treya capturing the companions, companions was removed. Instead, fighting through the Treyas Academy is just a long slog through every type of Dark Jedi and Sith enemy the game can throw at you. Part of the way through this slog, Atten was supposed to get his time to really shine, but the scene was cut. Atten would have escaped his cell, but be tracked down by Darth Sion, and the two would have a duel to the death. That sounds really cool, but was cut because it made no sense without the other scenes, obviously. Once Sarek is done fighting through wave after wave of Sith, she's rewarded with a duel against Darth Sion, the immortal guy who looks like he fell into a combine harvester. As you no doubt recall, we've encountered Darth Sion twice in the story, and he appeared once in Cryo's flashback to her exile from the Sith. In episode 6.1, 
Sion tracked the companions through the Harbinger before facing Kraya and cutting off her left arm below the elbow. Then, in episode 6.7, Sarek dueled Sion in the halls of the Sith Academy on Korriban. Sarek was able to strike the Sith Lord down several times, but Sion has a very nasty habit of using the dark side to resurrect himself from seeming death blows. The combination of resurrection and the dark side flowing through Korriban made Sion essentially unbeatable, and Sarek wisely chose to flee. Now their paths cross again in the gray and red corridors of the Trias Academy. As we noted last episode, each of the titular Sith Lords represents a corrupted version of some aspect of Surik. Nihilus was a wound in the Force that didn't cut himself off, but instead gave into it and fell to the dark side as a result. Sion, meanwhile, is the fractured student. Whereas Surik is the consummate apprentice to Kraya, Sion is largely hopeless. Yes, he's learned power and is functionally immortal, but in doing so, he's become totally reliant on his hatred and the dark side. As Kraya says, quote, yes, of pain, he has learned much. Of knowledge, of teaching, he knows nothing, end quote. Whereas Sirak grew exponentially as a student under Kraya, Sion learned reliance and how to prop himself up with the Force. He relied on his power, gave in fully to the dark side, and became a student that Trya never wanted. Sion would have been Sirak if he had been more receptive to Trya's instructions, instead of hearing her words continually and painfully echoing in his head as they do now. Within the hall of the Trias Academy, Sion explains that the building has stood for thousands of years as a Sith training ground long before Revan ever discovered Malachor V. Sion believes that the Academy holds knowledge that is integral to finding the true Sith threat that Trias so desperately fears and that Revan already went to face. Sion further believes that killing Zurich is a loyalty test that will put him back into Trias' good graces. So when we say that Sion is functionally immortal, that's true. He literally can't die unless he wills it. Sion's body is covered with hundreds of mortal wounds, yet he came back from every blow. His bones have been broken thousands of times over, yet he wills himself to continue and fuses them back together with the Force. The title, The Lord of Pain, is nothing if not apt. No matter what you do, no matter how many times you slice and dice Darth Sion, you cannot kill him. He has to make the decision to die. He literally has to give up the ghost. This isn't immediately apparent unless you talk to HK-47 after encountering Sion on Korriban. HK-47, being a tactic being the tactics and warfare expert that he is, has some helpful tips for Surik when confronting her remaining foes. Most of the suggestions are standard, except for Sion. HK-47 says that Sion will keep coming back unless Surik fully erodes his will to live. In essence, HK-47 wants you to talk Sion to death. Of course, that will only come after vigorous lightsaber combat because Sion also wants to finish the Purge of the Jedi, and as far as the Sith are concerned, Surik is the last Jedi. The two foes clash lightsabers as they duel around the room's many columns. Sion isn't necessarily a difficult opponent, he just can't be killed, and so you end up using all your consumables and stem packs if you aren't careful. After he's down, Sion rises and refills his health instantly, and the exile continues whittling away at his fragile psyche. 
Once he's been killed three times, Surik can start to hone in on the issues that will really break his will. Cyan is completely reliant on the Force for everything that he does, even keeping his flesh on his bones, a trait that Kreia warned Surik against many times. Kreia despised such over-reliance because she believed it made the user a slave to the whims of the Force, and it caused their other skills to atrophy. Nothing better illustrates this than Scion, who has such incredible power in the Force that he's unkillable, but whose entire existence is propped up by the Force. He only knows how to kill Jedi, resurrect himself through sheer will, hold his skin and bones together with the Force, and hate Treya. Surik has to defeat Scion at least three times to fully chip away at Scion's will. On some level, it's clear he wants to defeat Surik and take his rightful place at Trias' side, but it's far more apparent that Scion is ready to die and has been for some time. The only thing stopping him is fear. Fear of losing the Force and fear of the unknown. By the end, you end up feeling pity for him more than anything else. Don't misunderstand, he's definitely evil, but he's also a scarred, empty husk, and just trying to feel something other than hatred and pain. Trya believes Scion to be an unteachable failure who is unworthy of her instruction, much less her love. And though he does love the exile in his own weird way, he has no way to express those feelings. Finally, after four rounds of dueling with Surik, Darth Scion is down on his knees, coughing up blood and wondering why Trya chose the exile. Surik says it's because she cut herself off from the Force, something Scion could not do, even subconsciously, because of his constant reliance. Scion doesn't believe it's possible to give up the Force in such a way. Quote, it is not possible to walk away from such things unscarred, to keep living when the universe dies around you. And quote, Surik replies that scars are inevitable when one faces death, but there's also room for healing. Eventually, Scion realizes that Trya hates him because of his over-reliance on the Force, but rises to his feet once more. It appears that he's ready for another beating, but instead, Scion gives a few parting words to his counterpart. After a moment, the Dark Lord begins to slump in his stance, and in obvious pain says, quote, I am glad to leave this place at last. And quote, with those words, Scion's body crumpled to the ground, and he breathed his last. The human male named Darth Scion was of unknown age and had ruled as a member of the Sith Triumvirate for about four years at his death. He had been instrumental in prosecuting the first Jedi Purge and nearly succeeded in wiping the Order from the galaxy. Scion finally gave up the ghost after being talked to death by Surik. His passing leaves only Darth Trya, who awaits Surik's arrival at the Trias core. Trace Core is a short walk from the academy where Scion fell. The core is a platform that rises out of a seemingly bottomless chasm connected by a single narrow stone walkway. The platform is decorated with eight, eight stone columns around the outside edge that make it look like a giant claw reaching up from the heart of Malachor V. Sirk crosses the narrow walkway and finds Darth Trya in all her glory. Trya has traded her simple Jedi raiment in for all black robes and in the accessories of a Sith Lord. Her hair is braided with black ties and her atrophied eyes have gone from milky white to midnight black. 
the confrontation is different from most in that Treya has kept her apprentice in the dark for much of the game, and now it is time for all to be revealed. This is done in stages as Trio will discuss some of her plans before engaging Surik in lightsaber combat. Trio will briefly stop and regroup and then duel Surik again, this time with three floating purple lightsabers. After Trey is defeated a second time, she will be near death and answer all of Surik's questions, including in-depth prophecies of the future for many of the major characters in KOTOR 2. If you were looking for answers aplenty, you came to the right place. As the Master and Apprentice meet again, Trya says, quote, You no doubt have many questions. I would be a poor teacher if I did not give you the answers you seek here now. End quote. And she's not kidding. Trya lays all her cards on the table. Why did Trya do all this? Because she hates the Force. She hates that it has a will and imposes its destiny on beings. Trya says, Quote, because I hate the force, I hate that it seems to have a will that it would control us to achieve some measure of balance when countless lives are lost, end quote. Treya sees the force as a god of mischief that gives some beings powers, but at the cost of being used to facilitate the whims of the force to achieve balance. Given everything we know about how the Force works, it's easy to find evidence to back up Trias' claim. But in the exile, Trias sees a blank spot in the Force and a way to blot out its influence from the galaxy permanently. And Trias loves the exile for that. Surik asks why Trias would wield the Force if it's something she so despises. And the Dark Lord counters that she uses the Force to study it, to find a way to destroy it. Then, in a moment of clarity, she admits that these are just excuses, and she simply comes to rely on something she hates. Trya is, like every other person to ever live, a hypocrite. She spent an entire game breaking the Jedi Order down to its foundation, teaching Surik that hero worship is a Vainglorious pursuit taken up by idiots and fools too scared of reality to investigate all its problems. And she's absolutely right, but even she fell victim to it. Trya could never get over Revan. He left too much of a mark. Earlier in the game, when asked about how Revan was as a student, Trya said, quote, Revan was power. It was like staring into the heart of the Force. Even then, you could see the Jedi he would slay etched on his soul, end quote. But in another dialogue with Surik, Kraya can't even bring herself to say that he fell to the dark side. Instead, she believed that Revan was true to himself and simply took on other personas as needed. At one point, Kraya goes so far in justifying Revan's actions that she says he destroyed the Mandalorians, stole the Republic fleet, took up the title Dark Lord of the Sith, and started a three-year war that tore the galaxy apart because it had to be done for the greater good. Crya says, quote, the galaxy would have fallen if Revan had not gone to war. Perhaps he became the Dark Lord out of necessity to prevent a greater evil, end quote. There are shockingly bad justifications for war crimes, and then there's this. It's not like we even see other evidence for it elsewhere in the game. Michael, HK-47, and Kraya all confirmed that Revan carefully placed his forces to maximize casualties of his enemies, both the Mandalorians and those within the Jedi Republic. Kraya doesn't even dispute that fact. She just believes that Revan made his choice 
based on some more mysterious utilitarian logic that said sacrificing lives in Malachor Five would mean saving more lives in the end, somehow. We're all hypocrites to some degree. Even the great and powerful Darth Trya still falls prey to a bit of hero worship. When Trya talks about her plan to kill the Force, Surik realizes that Trya has been manipulating her the entire time. Trya claims that the manipulation was intended to make Surik stronger, but the Exile sees it as a ploy used to take revenge on all of Trya's enemies, both Jedi and Sith. Darth Trya doesn't really deny that she used Surik to this end, but says it was a little more complicated than just revenge. Quote, I used you to keep the Lords of the Sith from condemning the galaxy to death with their power unchecked. End quote. Trya admits she used Surik to defeat the Sith, destroy the old Jedi Order, and expose the lies of Atris. Did all of these actions achieve revenge for Trya? Yes, absolutely. But they also ensured that the Sith Lords wouldn't destroy the galaxy through one means or another, and they also acted to train Surik. They were pieces of Surik's past that needed to be resolved. Quote, something you could confront and defeat one last time. It was part of your training, part of what was needed to make you complete. End quote. So yes, Trya used Surik to accomplish her goals, but in doing so, Surik also became stronger and kept the Sith from consigning the galaxy to death. And Trya didn't really lie to Surik except on two occasions that we remember. She said the Jedi Council stripped Surik of the Force in 3959, and she said she didn't know how Revan corrupted so many Jedi so quickly. But if Crya slash Treya went to all of this trouble to train the Exile, that necessitates the question, why her? To that, to that end, Treya replies, quote, Perhaps you were expecting some surprise for me to reveal a secret that had eluded you, something that would change your perspective of events, shatter you to your core. There is no great revelation, no great secret. There is only you, end quote. There's no hidden bloodline, no shocking parentage revelation. There's just a flawed woman, the product of a lifetime of regrets, mistakes, and sins. The big revelation of KOTOR 2 isn't that your player character is the last scion of an ancient house or that you were once the Dark Lord but then got amnesia. No, it's far worse than that. The big reveal is that you're just you with all your flaws and insecurities and failures. It's a personal story about catharsis and space wizards. Sarek protests that others could have stood in her shoes, but Trya disagrees. Many before and after will alienate themselves from the Force or be blinded as Trya once was, but no Force user has ever cut themselves off so completely that it created a wound in the Force. It's very rare you can say a character in Star Wars is the only one to have done something, but Surik is the only one to do this. Tria believes there is no truth to be found in the Force, quote, but there is truth in you, Exile, and that is why I chose you, end quote. But now it's time for the duel to commence because Apprentice and Master must face off with one killing the other. It is the way of things. Trya brandishes her red lightsaber with her only remaining hand while Surik dual wields. This first part of the duel isn't too difficult, even though Trya's force powers are debilitating at times. Plus, if you get in trouble, you can use the numerous 
columns to mess with the game's wonky enemy tracking. Once enough damage is dealt, another dialogue will begin with Trya invisible pain from the wound suffered at the hands of her apprentice. Sarek, of course, attempts to redeem Trya, but her pleas fall on deaf ears. Trya implores the exile to strike her down or die, and unleashes her secret weapon. Three floating purple lightsabers she controls with the Force. Unlike the first fight with Trya, the trio of lightsabers can be really tough, especially if the player gets cornered on one of the columns and the floating sabers get a couple of critical strikes in. If you've never seen it, the lightsabers float at various angles and attack the player at random, chasing them around the core, while Trya controls them with the Force. They move and act like individual enemies, so they can be poison shot, electrocuted, and stabbed, even though they're floating lightsabers. Why are these lightsabers purple instead of red? No clue. Maybe they just thought it looked cool. It's probably best to not ask a ton of questions about the mechanics of the lightsabers and just enjoy the spectacle. Nevertheless, Sirik fights and defeats three floating lightsabers with each one seemingly tied to Trya's life as she visibly weakens as each saber is destroyed. And that's it. That's the last time the player has control in the game. The true ending won't be some execution fraught with meaning and tinged with regret, or a satisfying beheading of a mortal enemy. Instead, Treya is going to explain everything the Exile wishes to know and set up the seemingly inevitable third KOTOR game. It's an ending in death that relies on writing and player investment in the game they've played, not action and big set pieces. As if Obsidian or KOTOR 2 would have it any other way. Darth Treya stands in the center of the Treyas core, woozy and near death after losing the duels with Surik, but she will hang on long enough to wrap everything up in a neat little package. Surik started out the game unconscious on a ship adrift in space, and now she's defeated every member of the Sith Triumvirate, stabilized the Republic, and saved the Jedi Order. Not bad for The Last Jedi. Treya says as much, quote, You are greater than any I have ever trained. By killing me here, you have rewarded me more than you can possibly know, end quote. Sarek asks what happens next, and Treya proceeds to lay out her options. Since this is an RPG, Sarek will have three options to choose from. She can take the Exile's path again, depart the known galaxy, and never be troubled by these people again. Sirk can also take the dark side route by killing Treya and remaining in the Treyas Academy until new Sith hopefuls begin to arrive. Or Sirk can adhere to the light side and follow Revan into the unknown regions to help him defeat the true Sith. Treya hopes that Sirk will decide to follow Revan but stresses that the two are different and that the Exile's path is her own. Because this is a light side run, and later works confirmed it, Sirik will pursue Revan into the unknown, which is also the choice that results in the destruction of Malachor V. Then, as promised, Trey agrees to look into the future through the Force and predict what will happen to every major character, faction, and world in KOTOR 2. Treya says that Malachor V channels energies that allow her to see the future clearly and agrees to answer Sirk's questions, one exile to another. We thought about trying to end this with some grand summation of KOTOR 2, but frankly, we've been at this for 11 episodes now and have hammered those themes enough. 
that you know them by heart. Instead, we're going to run through Trias predictions and let that serve as the finale of our KOTOR 2 narrative. We will fill in with any additional info we know from other sources, and the next episode, we will cover the tragic history of KOTOR 3. Besides, it's hard to find a better summary of the game than Catharsis and Space Wizards. Trias predictions range from near-term info like the fate of Cirque's companions, all the way to events that would happen more than 3,900 years later during the prequel and original trilogies. Beginning with the Republic, Trias says that it will one day fall, but it will take millennia to arrive. The worlds that Cirque visited would also be changed for the better because of her actions. Telos IV would be fully repaired by the Athorians who led the Telos Restoration Project, thanks to Cirque's intervention. Similar restoration projects would continue for hundreds of years, making dozens of worlds habitable again. Dantooine will continue to heal from the wounds inflicted by the Sith, standing as a Republic bulwark in the Outer Rim against Mandalorians, raiders, and slavers. The Republic would return and establish bases while the Jedi Enclave ruins would remain, eventually being rebuilt by the Order before 3953 BBY. Next up is the Smuggler's Moon, Nar Shaddaa. Trias sees that the world will continue as it has for thousands of years, but now has a heart that was missing before. Thanks to Cirque's kindness, the refugees would begin to flourish despite their struggles. Cirque generated hope from despair, so it seems that Crya's diatribe about giving change to homeless people was a bit off the mark. Trias says that Onderon will prosper under the long rule of Queen Talia, though remaining in the Republic will cause its people to lose their old ways and customs. Finally, there's Korriban, which Trias says the Sith have forgotten, but only for a time. Quote, Korriban shall be as it always was, a graveyard for the darkest of the Sith lords, still whispering within their tombs. It shall always be a source of evil, spawning threats throughout the millennia. End quote. Moving to Cirque's companions, Treya calls them the Lost Jedi, Quote, the true Jedi upon which the future will be built, they simply needed a leader, a teacher, end quote. These six Jedi that Surik tra- has trained, Baudera Michael, Brianna, Mira, Atanrand, and Visa Smar, will become the core that totally rebuilds the Jedi Order. As the Order stands in 3951, it has no leadership, no organizational structure, and no way to find or recruit new members. However, these six Jedi who were taught by Surik for at most three weeks will fully rebuild the Order and do a damn good job of it too. The Lost Jedi will take the Order from its current state of about six members to thousands of knights by the beginning of the Old Republic MMO storyline 300 years later. They would get some help from Master Deesra Lurjada, who's still around, and Bastila Shin, but it's the core six companions who do the heavy lifting. This is also the first time they're really called Jedi in the game by anyone besides Surik, but they were more Jedi than any of the Masters we met in the game. Even Treya, who doesn't like them, recognizes that they are the building blocks of the future Jedi Order. First up is Mira, who Treya says will, quote, uh, stop hunting life and instead live it. She was not born to be a predator despite her true father and the life she led within the shadow of Nar Shaddaa, end quote. Who is Mira's true father mentioned here? Uh, we have absolutely no clue. We don't know that it has ever been addressed. Treya says that 
Treya says that Miro will die many years from now, quote, on a forgotten planet, saving the lives of others, but it will be her choice and she will have no regrets, end quote. Miro would always think highly of Surik for awakening the force within. Visus Mars' future is much less clear, though Treya foresees that she will return to Qatar, quote, and look upon its look upon the surface of the world and perhaps at last see what she was meant to see in quote mar finally found the belonging she sought in the form of Surik and the lost jedi and she would eventually gain closure from seeing her home once again next is brianna the handmaiden who will take up the role of historian just like atrus once had quote and teach others and teach others of the Jedi exile who gave up the Force and became stronger for it, end quote. Since we're talking Brianna, that means it's also our last chance to discuss the connections between Kraya and RNK. It's not particularly important to the story, but it is interesting to see how many of the points line up. It should be noted that this theory was never been confirmed, though when Chris Avalone was asked about it, he responded, Quote, can't comment, but good catch. Sorry. Quote. You'll recall that Brianna's mother was an ex-Jedi named RNK who died at Malachor V. Before that, Kay served as one of Revan's masters along with Zar Lestin and Dorak, according to Michael. Michael also says that Revan returned to his first master to learn how to leave the Jedi Order. Later, RNK was exiled from the Jedi circa 3964 after it was discovered that she had conceived Brianna in 3976. Brianna was said to have her mother's face and wear her hair the same. Masters, as Kael, also says that Kay was exiled for teaching Revan. After her exile, R&K followed Revan into the Mandalorian Wars, but was said to have died at Malachor V. Now recall that Kraya was exiled from the Jedi Order, also sometime around 3964, because Revan and others went to fight in the Mandalorian Wars. Kraya says she was Revan's first and last master, the one to whom he returned to learn how to leave the Order. Vruk Lamar seems to confirm that Kraya was Revan's master on Dantooine, saying that Kraya's teachings would cause Surik to fall just like Revan. Kraya says she retraced Revan's steps after being exiled and didn't fight in the Mandalorian Wars. However, when Kraya arrives to defend Surik on Dantooine, Master Kavar says that he thought she died at Malachor V, and Kraya doesn't deny it, but counters she didn't die, but was made stronger. Additionally, Atra says Kraya is not the name of the old woman who travels with Surik, so it seems that Kraya isn't her name, and the Jedi Master seem to know her as someone else. Finally, Kraya and Brianna share very similar facial models with white hair tied in braids that hang down. It's apparent when Kraya removes her hood on Dantooine, which was cut from the game. Last but not least, Kraya sounds like he just mixed up the letters to Aaron K to make a new name. You know, sometimes you just got to use uh, scientific analysis to uh, to cut to the heart of the issue there. Uh, next up in predictions is Atten Rand, of whom Treya says, quote, Atten is, as always, the fool. And the Force watches out for ones such as him, I feel, end quote. Rand would go on to become a proud Jedi after hunting them for the Sith earlier in life. He finally found some level of atonement. 
Treya sees Michael sitting on the new Jedi Council, but he will do so, quote, reluctantly, as all good men do, end quote. Later materials tell us that Michael's first action in leading the new Jedi was to sentence Atris, who chose exile for her crimes despite being offered a chance to return to the Order. Michael would also build a Jedi archive in the Kron Drift that was lost and later rediscovered by the Jedi who found a Jedi holocron Michael had created before his death. The last of the lost Jedi is Baudur, but Treya cannot see his future because he was supposed to be dead but was saved by cuts. We know that he helped rebuild the Jedi Order and eventually had a science prize named after him thanks to the Old Republic MMO. Treya also couldn't see the future of the droids, so that leaves Candorus and the Mandalorians. Uh, finally referring to Candorus by his real name, Treya says that the Mandalore has many battles left, just as Revan always intended. Ordo is nothing if not loyal to Revan and would likely have played a big role in KOTOR 3. Regarding the Mandalorians, Treya returns to her old familiar spite. Her disdain for the Mandalorians is truly awe-inspiring. Quote, they will die a death that will last millennia until all that is left is their code, their history, and in the end, the shell of their armor upon the shell of a man too easily slain by a Jedi. End quote. Uh, Trey describes, describes the death of Jango Fett at the hands of Mace Windu in Attack of the Clones that occurred more than 3,900 years later. When Surik asks what Treya sees in her own future, Treya sounds like a proud and protective mother. Quote, I would have killed the galaxy to preserve you. I would have let the galaxy die. You are more precious than you know. What you have taught yourself cannot be allowed to die. You are not a Jedi, not truly. And it is for that that I love you. End quote. Before she passes, Treya has some words of warning about the coming war against the true Sith. Trya says that the remnant of Revan's Sith Empire is not the true Sith who have been amassing power in the unknown regions since the end of the Great Hyperspace War in 5000 BBY. Trya has warned of them before the real Sith remnant from the original Sith Empire shown in Tales of the Jedi. In episode 6.7, when the Iban Hawk landed on Korriban, Trya described the true Sith as being closer to gods than the current batch of Jedi and Sith in the galaxy. Trya now says that Revan knew that the real war against the true Sith would be fought elsewhere. Revan left everything he loved behind because, quote, such attachments would only bring doom to them both in the dark places where she now walks, end quote. Trya says that Surik must now do the same. When Surik asks why Trya did not follow Revan, she says that she was not asked and truly did not know where Revan had gone. Instead, Trya decided to show the others the way because Revan needs warriors, quote, Sith and Jedi, any who can be sent after him into the depths of space, any who know the way, and quote, Surik will follow Revan to face the true Sith and, quote, do battle at the end of all things, end quote. At this, Surik could see that Trya was fading fast and bid her master to rest, saying, quote, your time in this place is over, end quote. Wordlessly, Trya gave up the ghost and fell to the floor at the center of the Trias core. So died one of the most interesting characters in the history of Star Wars. We hope we are able to do justice to Krya slash Trya. 
After Treya's death, there's a piece of cut content where Cirque speaks with Visas, Brianna, Mikal, Mira, and Atten, telling them that she will follow Revan into the Unknown Regions and they must stay to help rebuild the Jedi Order. They are reluctant to do so, but agree to stay behind and honor Cirque's wishes. After Cirque leaves the Trias Corps, she makes her way to the Ebon Hawk and lifts off before giving Bowder's remote the signal. As the ship departs, Malachor V is rocked by a massive explosion that turns the loose collection of planetoids and surrounding ship graveyard into an asteroid field. The mass shadow generator has been activated for the second and final time, destroying Malachor V for good and all. The last shot we see is Surik in the Ebon Hawk flying towards a nebula and into the unknown. Since this is the final episode on KOTOR 2, I wanted to take a moment to say thank you to everyone. When we started the show, this was the story I was most excited to tell because it means so much to me personally. In early 2018, I revisited the game while taking care of a newborn daughter, Maddie, who was born with cancer. Don't worry, Maddie is perfectly healthy, is a perfectly healthy two-year-old today, but things were touch and go for a little while, uh, and she went through chemo. When I revisited KOTOR 2, I was mired in uh, bad depression and experiencing PTSD while taking care of Maddie during her six chemo treatments, and I began subconsciously using the game and its themes to process my grief and trauma. Uh, Truth be told, I didn't even realize I was doing it until a friend named Lena, who you can find at uh, Banal Play on Twitter, uh, posted a random tweet saying that KOTOR 2 is a story about depression. That tweet sort of crystallized everything in my head and started to give me a new perspective on the game and even Star Wars generally. It's weird to process such emotions and feelings through the lens of an old incomplete video game in a franchise that mostly traffics in children's stories, but any port in a storm, I suppose. Indeed, writing the KOTOR narrative has been incredibly helpful for me in confronting and dealing with what happened, and I hope y'all enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed writing it. So hopefully this gives you a better understanding of how the show approached KOTOR 2 and why we spent 11 episodes on Catharsis and Space Wizards. Uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to say thank you to a few people for making this possible. Thank you to Kelsey for being an amazing co-host and putting up with my scattershot scripts. Thank you to all our listeners. I le- never imagined we'd have more than a handful Thanks to my wife, Amy, for putting up with this nonsense. And finally, thank you to my daughter, Maddie, for being the best one. Again, thank you all for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. And thank you, Luke. I've been thoroughly enjoying it. And I look forward to however we take it beyond here, which next time we will be talking about the past 50 years of galactic history. Going to tie it up in a little bow, discuss everything we know about KOTOR 3, and we will begin to bridge the gap from KOTOR 2 to the Old Republic MMO. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPOD or email us at FOTORPODCAST at gmail.com. You can send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at Luke is amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the force be with you.